Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast by LPRC. This is the latest in our weekly update series. Um, today, I'm joined uh, by... Tony D'Afrio and Tom Meehan, our partners, and our producer, uh, Diego Rodriguez. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, what's going on around the U.S. and the world uh, that can affect particularly retailing, uh, but life in general. Um, so we're talking a little bit about, uh, obviously, the coronavirus that comes from uh, SARS-CoV-2, or the COVID-19 disease. And um, what we're talking about is some Looking at the effects now, the United States looks like roughly 76% um, of those over 65 have been fully vaccinated, which is should be you know substantial. And different states had different tactics. I know Governor DeSantis' strategy based on conferring with uh, medical people, including at UF, was to race to the clusters of those most vulnerable, again, to the to serious disease and even fatalities, and that would be the very elderly, but where they're clustered together, um, which creates a highly infectious and dangerous state, and that would be a lot of the care homes uh, that we've got, um, you know, assisted living facilities and so forth, um, enlisting the help of public supermarkets and others, and then moved out very rapidly with mobile units and other ways to get those. So it looks like though across the United States, that's a very good sign um, and but another one is that 64% roughly of those over 18 in the United States have now been vaccinated. Um, so we're getting there. We're getting there uh, rapidly. If you think again, that's just a little over a year since we even heard of this uh, this serious virus. Um, but what we're also seeing, it looks like, in, as I go through the literature there in in some of the articles that are out there, and that is that teens hospitalization. They've been able to compare that with. Uh, seasonal influenza or flu, and still three times higher. So again, we see that this can be very serious disease, and we just can't always predict it. We know the risk factors that typically are prognostic, but not always, and that still the serious disease level and even fatality levels of the non-vaccinated remain at the same levels as they were before the vaccines emerged. Um, And so there's this almost false sense of security uh, of the non-vaccinated as they see the vaccinated people out there um, moving around and not necessarily getting sick, not realizing that they actually are not protected and um, unless they've had COVID-19 um, themselves. Um, and so a uh, serious situation there. It looks like across the globe, uh, just over 2.2 billion humans have now um, been vaccinated in one form or another, probably roughly half a billion fully vaccinated, depending on, again, what they're what vaccine they are using. The United States, you know, looks like now over 303 million doses administered, which is now meaning probably around 140 to 145 million Americans have been vaccinated. Again, because it started with uh, the most elderly in in many areas, or at least those over uh, 18 at this point, we're talking about that's where you come up with 
uh, almost 65% of uh, adults have been vaccinated. Um, so again, again, if we go back and look at the strategy again, the most vulnerable to serious disease and death, uh, then those that are most exposed to the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that's where we looked at healthcare and essential workers, if you will. And then the third strategy is the spreaders, the super spreaders, but particularly those that are individuals that are moving and exposing the others to themselves all the time. And if they happen to have uh, COVID-19, are viremic and shedding the virus, particularly if they're a heavy shutter, uh, a super spreader, as they were called. Um, that's what that strategy was, as a reminder there. Um, so <clears throat> exciting stuff that we've gotten so many people vaccinated with such a powerful uh, and unique vaccine type. Um, it looks like there are about 77 preclinical other vaccine options still in development, uh, whether it's just in silico, in other words, computer simulations with these high, high-speed computers. Uh, 92 uh, vaccine candidates in clinical uh, trials. Now we're at the 51 or now in phase one, Fifth, uh, excuse me, 34 in phase two. And now we're up to 30 uh, vaccine candidates in phase three, large scale randomized controlled trials with humans. Um, so all three of those uh, phases. Uh, so that's the 92 in clinical evaluation, rigorous clinical evaluation. I think there's been concern about the the uh, proposed haste of the development of the existing vaccines, the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, um, and so forth. And But in fact, the phase one, two, and three trials that were conducted, not just in the United States, but in the UK and Europe and other parts of the world where they were replicating and re-replicating, that's the highest level of science I'm aware of as a scientist, where we have rigorous um, randomized controlled trials, particularly if you go through three different phases, um, but finally that you're replicating um, those, those clinical trials across the world in all these different types of conditions and so on. So it's actually maybe the most uh, investigated or researched um, uh, vaccine in history rather than the other way around. Again, warp speed, what that did from the prior administration was was provide massive funding to the to those candidates most likely and most successful candidates that they could identify at the time, but but more importantly to uh, get ready and start to manufacture the vaccines before anybody knew what the results of the trials might be. So that allowed rapid distribution and so on. Um, looking at uh, testing for variants again, there are over a hundred different uh, COVID nineteen or SARS CoV two tests available around the world um, of varying quality and accuracy. Um, we see some of these that are still uh, providing what we call type one or, po or false positive errors at a, a little bit higher rate than you'd like to see. Um, those that are not quite sensitive enough and so on. But, um, but the fact that, um, that there, it, we're rapidly uh, having the capability, not just in the UK, which kind of led the world to a certain extent and being able to very rapidly sequence uh, infections throughout the UK and identify variants as they were starting to evolve um, and then get an idea of where they were traveling to and how and so on, what the vectors were, um, helped a lot. Now you're seeing that really in many countries, of course, including the United States around the world, that that's going to help us to a certain extent. Uh, even the, the, the largest concern right now is this Delta virus uh, that's uh, evolved in uh, India. Um, that variant uh, seems to be one that's um, got a lot of scientists and physicians very, very concerned. But, but at the same time, they're seeing that in their data that those that are fully vaccinated um, 
they don't seem to have a real problem with that variant. It's just more, more of a problem for those that are unvaccinated. Uh, and it seems to be pretty rapidly spreading uh, around the world. So stay tuned um, to all that. Uh, the travel, it's mixed. Um, you know, Tony and I are monitoring, I imagine Tom as well, um, as we try and go and uh, move around the world to get some things done <clears throat> to protect people and places. Um, but again, if we can just get to that roughly 70 plus percent adults in the United States, we could move from amber to to green travel status for many of these countries. Um, and so we'll we'll keep everybody posted. But it looks like this, uh, the big summit um, that's coming up where uh, the G5 and G7 and so on as they add countries in there, that there's going to be a lot of discussion, uh, and hopefully a lot of science-informed discussion around what makes the most sense, which countries can start to reconnect in um, the best way. Because right now, some of the places that we like and need to go, there's still a 10-day uh, quarantine period for coming to the United States um, because we're not quite fully vaxxed yet. Um, so looking at, uh, there's some other interesting fallouts from what we've experienced in 2020 into 21 with the COVID-19. Um, and that is that at least two um, very virulent and um, readily spotted flu variants or strains seem to be ex almost extinct, possibly haven't been seen in months and months and months. And so again, the idea of everybody separating and masking and and so forth um, may have and, and washing their hands and so on there are a lot more hygiene going on that you saw that those that seemed to knock out some of the flu that was circulating colds are starting to make a comeback um, and so everybody stand by there uh, so there is there are other types of viruses going around so switching over um, at, to LPRC and to research, um, we're going to start putting out some pictures here pretty shortly of our Safer Places Lab and what we're doing out in the Southwest parking lot, we call it. Um, we've got three live view trailers to, to now deployed there with all different types of sensors from cameras and RL and so on in that area. Um, we've got a lot of um, pretty cool things there where we're trying to um, better understand behavior in parking lots, um, understand positive, negative, and dead space in those and how. Uh, the red guy, the bad guy uses those to take advantage for, you know, theft, fraud and violence in the parking lot area, as well as what is it about positive, negative and dead space that um, is scary to the green person, particularly our value chopper employee. So with these live view traders and other sensors and other things we can do with smart lighting, uh, we're looking for very cost effective ways, things that we can do with the height and density of vegetation and so on, um, what those balances might be. Um, to make it safer and help the green person, he or she, feel and be safer. Uh, and then the opposite for the red guy, that person that's trying to victimize others. Um, so stay tuned on that. But it's, it's pretty neat all that's going on uh, in that Southwest parking lot. And then again, what's going on in the virtual reality field with Dr. Kong and students uh, working with LPRC to um, create the same environment in a virtual reality way so we can create that learning loop between uh, VR and the real place. And then uh, finally working with several leading retailers stores in Gainesville uh, with those parking lots. So now we can start to what's called translational science where we can move things through pathways and create strong learning loops um, in that same way. So stay tuned for that. Uh, priming is another area of research that we've been working on for a long time. And you know that with the signage of different types and sizes, 
um, we've been working on how do we prime the pump. In other words, get people to look up or to help them see, get, and, and respect or respond to the stimuli we put out there. Um, in this way, we can also repurpose some uh, pre protective preventive technologies that have sort of gone by the wayside uh, or just aren't known or respected anymore. Uh, may, we think we can bring some new life there through priming. Um, we've added a new scientist on our team, Kenna being uh, Kenna Carlson, our research team leader at the LPRC, uh, Dr. Corey Lowe being our an, another uh, research scientist, but also the innovation team leader. Uh, we've added um, Mackenzie uh, Kushner to the team, um, another uh, doctoral student finishing up at the University of Florida as a research scientist. So now there are actually four of us that are um, you know, graduate trained criminologists. It's uh, exciting for me. It's exciting for all of us that what we're now going to be able to get done uh, to support you all out there um, with good uh, evidence-based practice. Um, another reminder that impact the LPRC Impact Conference is coming up the first week in October in Gainesville, Florida. We're really excited about that. Amazing content, speakers, um, some cool social events as per normal, some really neat lab tours inside and outside. Um, to expose people. There's just no conference I'm aware of, and I've been to them for over 30 years now, like this one in that the content, the experience, uh, just the baseline. Um, and then the 68, 70 uh, top retailers that we work with, all their leading people in here, as well as 70 leading technologists from our uh, supporters and members from the uh, solution partner realm. So with no further ado, let me go over to Tony D'Onofrio and Let's see what we've got going on. Thank you very much, Reed, and great update as usual. Let me start uh, with an update on uh, LPRC Europe. Uh, the planning continues, as you are correct. We are monitoring travel to see if we can get into Europe in July. The date has been set as July 21st for a retailer meeting in London, um, hosted, uh, co-hosted with TJ Maxx, or TK Maxx, as they call it, in Europe. Planning continues, a survey will go out to actually get priorities from the Europeans in terms of what they want to focus on. Uh, so we're looking forward to that, but it, it starts with the borders actually opening up and that's what we monitor every day. So Reed, I appreciate those articles you sent this morning. It looks like there is some discussion going on. So my gut tells me that things will open up by July 21st and this event will take place. So. Let me switch to uh, some updates uh, from around the world. Uh, and I'm going to start actually with uh, a Boston Consulting Group Executive Perspective Series. And this one is titled How to End the Global Pandemic in 2022. Their view is that the COVID-19 recovery will be driven by disease progression, the average economic impact, government policies, and business and public responses. One of the concerns that they have, and it is a concern that actually I expressed early on in one of my videos, there is a, and they say there's a 100x discrepancy in vaccination rates between high-income countries and low-income countries. And there are 2.7 billion people in countries where it will take several years to finish initial round of vaccination, which would lead or could lead to exactly what Reed was talking about, which are variants. As an example of how fast the variants can spread, it took less than six months for the B117 to spread from one country to 120 countries. 
So we're in a race right now to globally minimize variants. And cases are still high, especially in uh, low-income countries. And the resurgence that we talked about in India is concerning. Uh, based on the current plans, uh, uh, the Boston Consulting Group thinks that it will take until 2024 to emerge fully out of the pandemic, as some lower-income countries are severely behind in vaccination. The irony of all this is that we will actually reach the supply needed for the world in 2021, but a lot more work needs to be done on distribution, especially to those low-income countries. There's also a challenge on vaccine hesitancy around the world, according to the Boston Consulting Group. In France, I was surprised it's 41%. In Germany and Japan, it's 26%. This was a shock. In Russia, it's 58%. In South Africa, it's 36%. And even in China, which has been extremely aggressive, vaccine hesitancy is 20%. So a lot more needs to be done, especially in those low-income countries, to actually get the pandemic under control. Let me switch topics now and look at how e-commerce will conquer 2021 and beyond, and what are some of the barriers to the continued growth of e-commerce. And this data is from uh, Recondure. In the first quarter of 2021, digital uh, commerce growth grew uh, 58%. A major challenge for digital commerce uh, is that we are not happy we're waiting for our stuff. And the and consumers, in other words, hate to wait. And the amount of time that we wait varies around the world. It is going down, but it's going down slowly. So for example, in the UK, it takes 2.55 days in 2019 to get our goods. That dropped to 2.54 in 2020. US, it was 3.35. In 2019, it dropped to 3.12. In 2020, Germany 2.42, dropping to 2.5, actually went up slightly in 2.5. So again, uh, the stuff is coming, but not fast enough for some of us who just want to just go to the store and uh, get the, and get instant gratification by picking the item on the shelf. And that again is good for physical stores in terms of what uh, what they're able to do. Consumers are also concerned about online fraud. 72% are worried where their personal data is being stored and who has access to it. 71% are concerned that the websites may not have adequate security measures and the hacks that happen periodically that Tom talks about a lot don't help. And 60% are unsure who will be held accountable if a fraud occurred. The top five reasons why uh, the uh, we buy products online is 53% is free delivery, 41% coupons and discounts, 35% of, of what I said last week, refused by other customers or friends, and 33% uh, is a clear return policy, and 20% easy online checkout. And finally, uh, just this past week, I did a new article on the computer vision that uh, the article is titled Visualizing a More Profitable Computer Vision Future of Retail. And this was actually inspired by a couple of things. I spent some really good quality time with, with actually an LPRC, very active member, uh, looking at the work that they're doing to go from one application 
to some really cool, innovative, disruptive computer vision applications. I've also been following very, very closely the uh, hype cycle for artificial intelligence that Garner's plays uh, um, this publishes every year. And in 2020, they put computer vision at the trough of disillusionment, really going into it, but coming out in two to five years to an uh, explosive growth. Based on what I saw just from the company that I spent that quality time with, and just from studying the industry, I, I think that computer vision is accelerating. And that can be seen, again, by all the work that's going on with computer vision at LPRC. In uh, the other key trend that's driving all this, uh, as I said multiple times in, across many articles, in 2021, we will reach 1 billion cameras installed around the world. So all those cameras which started out to protect uh, theft and crime now have become data gathering device. So there's now 1 billion of these this year that will do a lot of the data gathering. Uh, the applications uh, that I talk about uh, for computer vision in the articles include inventory visibility, cashier, cashierless stores, and merchandising. Those are the top three. The costliest to implement right now is cashierless stores. And you got, and again, uh, speculation was that, for example, an Amazon Go cost a million dollar plus uh, in the past to initially the plan, but that cost is coming down. The easiest to implement, by the way, is inventory visibility. The market will grow from 2.9 billion in 2018 to over 33 billion uh, by 2025. And uh, recently just published RIS news reports as a 10% retailers have started a major upgrade of their computer vision solutions and nearly 17% month will, will start in the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, Self-checkout is one of the key applications. We talked about Amazon Go. There's now 30 Amazon Go's uh, opened in the United States. In addition to uh, self-checkout, there's a lot of focus on uh, product availability and inventory. Uh, studies show that uh, consumers uh, encounter out-of-stocks in one out of three shopping uh, trips, which cost the industry $1 trillion. So getting the inventory uh, correct is very, very important. And in fact, uh, it, it's becoming even more important because of COVID, because the stores are actually becoming fulfillment centers. I also think, and again, LPRC is a good place to learn about it, that uh, computer vision is going to have some great applications in retail loss prevention. The, the machines could actually learn, identify patterns, and even identify folks that are stealing and how they're stealing and over time actually secure processes. And again, you see multiple successful applications already at this in retail. So in summary, I think it's an emerging technology, but its growth is exploding. And I do think it's going to be a major, major uh, solution, including covering things like inventory management, loss prevention, marketing, store layouts, and uh, much more. So I do think it's going to be a very profitable future of retail as these cameras provide data to actually improve uh, store operation. And I also think that LPRC is a good testing lab to learn for those green and red shoppers 
and how the computer vision can shape the future of retail. So that's my update this week. Let me turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony. And uh, thank you, Rita. Just to, to kind of echo, I completely agree with Tony in the computer vision front. Um, I also would like to highlight, you know, those billion IP cameras dramatically increase your digital risk footprint. And we consistently every week talk about cyber attacks. And uh, the more network devices you have, the more software, the more susceptible you are to it. I don't think they're going away. Um, cyber attacks. I think we just have to always be mindful of that digital risk uh, protection, uh, protection footprint. And it isn't about just the IT folks anymore. So just quickly wanted to touch on the fusion net. And I know we talk about it every week and it's really the kind of active intelligence uh, landscape for the LPRC, uh, and you know, uh, we use a platform to communicate openly with members and law enforcement about civil disruption, weather, and other events. And I thought it was pertinent to really talk about um, uh, in the last 24 hours, the the Justice Department. It's actually a joint report was released, 127 page report, uh, a very comprehensive overview about some of the events surrounding the Capitol riots on January 6th. And one of the highlights, you know, in all the federal agencies together put this is that there was a failure to adequately warn law enforcement of an event that occurs. And, you know, when I read this and, and I did not read the whole report, I just was able to get snippets of it. It really was about the, the intelligence was available, but wasn't distributed appropriately to the right levels. And it, it immediately I thought about the fusion net and how important it is and how much success we had, because what the fusion net allows is for anybody on their own time to go ahead and take a look at what other people are saying um, to there is some self-validation, there is some group validation, but if there, you know, if we backtrack to some of the events that occurred in the last year, the fusion net was a place where we were communicating openly and that source of Intel was there. So it really reaffirms the importance of the fusion net and how, you know, in this circumstance, I would say we were ahead of federal government. I, I think actually I recall being on, on a, a call the week before and talking about the potential disruption in, in the Capitol and talking, hearing retailers talking about boarding up and protecting their, their buildings and their people at that time. So uh, kudos to the Loss Prevention Research Council to having it and at being so effective because in some cases we were ahead of uh, law enforcement and the federal government of what was occurring. So, and that could only be achieved by the members participating. So um, I know that we are in some tough times still, and we still see civil disruption, but I can't stress enough the importance of you're a member and you're not, don't have someone on your team involved uh, to, you know, pick the phone up, send an email, get involved, get on the platform and share information. Switching gears to kind of some cyber um, incident or cyber attack information. So uh, on Memorial Day weekend, the largest meat uh, producer in the U.S. was uh, suffered a cyber attack. Uh, JBSSA, they are the largest meat uh, marketer in the world, and they had to shut down their U.S. operations. They they produce about twenty percent of the beef for the United States, but it's important to note that this attack affected their Australian and Canadian um, plants as well. And it just further, uh, you know, really talks to the importance of understanding the impact that some of these cyber attacks have when you think about meat manufacturing and infrastructure that these attacks um, you know spare no one and can have long-standing impacts and although this particular attack 
attack had minimal disruption, according to JBSA, it shows that, you know, what, you know, what the susceptibility is to some of these organizations of just imagine if they were down for weeks at a time, what would the impact would be on the cost of goods, as well as the distribution. And then, you know, uh, the, the challenge of potential safety hazards, you know, when you think about connected devices, in today's day and age, it's not uncommon for everything to be connected. So imagine a world where a hacker goes in and changes temperature settings on refrigeration units, what the risk could be, um, the risk of you know the, the sanitation processes that are automated or even the testing uh, processes. So in this particular attack, um, it, it does cause a little bit of a shutdown. We're not necessarily seeing a long-term effect. Uh, the White House was involved and said they're monitoring, but we continue to, to see this huge amount of attacks on public and private and, and government entities, and it is in, in the thousands of day. Uh, similarly, talking about, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I know it's repetitive, the colonial pipeline attack, but I think it is important to, to talk about that the FBI seized uh, 63 Bitcoin. And what does 63 Bitcoin mean? $2.8 million um, that was uh, part of the $4 million payup to the Colonial Pipeline was seized by the FBI. Why is this important? Because one, it shows that the U.S. government is going to aggressively uh, go after folks that attack infrastructure or large big business. It also shows that Bitcoin, however anonymous or safe you think it is, is not um, as safe as everyone thinks. And what I always often say is if any of the governments, ours or anybody, puts their resources to it, they can accomplish just about anything technologically. So this seizure is not the first time Bitcoin was seized, but it was a very quick seizure. And the point here is to really go um, aggressively after these bad actors. Um, and the group that was responsible for the Colonial Pipeline attack the dark side has basically closed up shop. They're, they don't appear to be, uh, while they are Russian in nature, government back. So I suspect in the upcoming weeks, we'll hear about how these members are caught. Um, there's a there's a method of, you know, when you're not affiliated with the government and you're drawing attention to the government, somehow you turn up uh, and you end up in, in U.S. customs or U.S. government hands. So a lot more to come on that. But one thing that did have impact here was after the seizure, within about 40 minutes, the Bitcoin price dropped. Now, can you can you directly correlate it to it? Not, not necessarily. But what's important to note here is that our government is taking very strong stances against it. And this actually next story is the Justice Department has really um, said that they're going to elevate ransomware attacks to be on par with terrorism attacks. So the Department of Justice hasn't really said what they're going to uh, put in place to, from uh, an actual crime level. But what they've talked about is elevate the investigative process. And I think if you think of I me, mean, Joe, what I just talked about in the FBI and the seizure for cybersecurity, it's a perfect example of we're going to treat this with the same level of terrorism, which if it doesn't serve as deterrent value to the bad guys, it should, because we're going to come after you. And when the U.S. intelligence agencies and law enforcement, federal law enforcement, puts their full forces behind something, um, as everybody probably knows as a listener, they can do things uh, remarkably well. So this is a big win, I think, for all of us, all the listeners here, that it's the Department of Justice taking the approach of we're, we're going to take this significantly serious. And I, I know we'll see some legislation and some things occurring 
based on some of the recent attacks to elevate the level of crime, elevate the investigative process, increase the deterrence process, as well as um, regulation around how money transfers to make it more difficult. You know, and I think it's the see it, fear it, get it mentality of LPRC taking that same approach towards this, where making sure the bad guys see what's occurring, they're afraid of it, and they understand what the consequence is. So we'll continue to keep everyone updated on that. Switching gears to the COVID front, a um, couple of different COVID stories. The Department of Justice um, last week announced that they had a, a case where they prosecuted uh, folks all over the country, Florida, California, um, about a dozen people in connection with uh, a COVID-19 testing scam where there was $150 million in false um, billing medical claims made. And this just goes to kind of what we always talk about, that when there is an event that uh, nefarious actors take advantage of it. In this case, there were arrests made and they were basically yeah, taking advantage of the Medicaid and Medicare system for millions of patients and charging for tests that never occurred. Uh, the investigation spanned a few months, but was able to get a dozen people um, arrested. And in this case, they were actually using, um, from what, what's available information-wise, they were actually using people's Medicaid and Medicare numbers that were um, either stolen or taken from breach data to go ahead and process false claims to the tune of, you know, in excess of $140 um, uh, million. And so when you think about that, um, it doesn't sound like a lot of, of, of money, but it also doesn't sound like a little bit. I think we'll see more of this uh, coming out. So this was a joint investigation in uh, the Department of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General's and the Inspector General Office is looking at um, some anomalies that didn't make sense. So we continue to see scams related around COVID-19. Additionally, um, and interesting enough, I don't know if we can get this in the show notes. I'll try to see if Diego can get it is um, there was uh, on Amazon postings for fake uh, COVID vaccination cards. They were promptly removed. I think it's important to note that Amazon did the right thing. As soon as um, this analyst put them up, Amazon had them removed very, very quickly. But um, I, I was able to capture some screen captures and get some things. And basically for $12.99, you could, you know, you had some fake Amazon cards out there. Um, they're not Amazon. I'm sorry. Um, vaccination cards on Amazon. So the vaccination, we, we spoke about fake vaccination cards once before, but now you're starting to see, again, what I think we always see is what starts on the dark web comes to the surface web. And now this is kind of a product that if you search, you can find. And the price point's important too, right? It was at $250, $300 when we started. Now you're at $12.99. And this is kind of the natural progression of what we see with things uh, similar to this. So uh, I do suspect that we'll continue to see fake um, vaccination cards, fake test results. And this poses a, you know, a significant risk for all of us because those of us who have been vaccinated, who are afforded um, you know, different um, things. So for instance, I have done some air travel. We're still wearing masks, but um, I've done quite a bit of travel in the last couple of weeks and have some next week. And, and having uh, a, an active vaccination card allows you to get to places you can't. There are several EU countries that are recognizing the Pfizer vaccine card in the US. So Germany is one of them where Germany has a digital passport type. Um, and if you have a Pfizer vaccination with a CDC card, you can get that in Germany, which allows you to um, cross border in certain um, European countries. Think of the risk here of these fake cards and what this poses for us. So I do believe that we'll continue to see it. I also believe that we'll continue to see um, 
you know, law enforcement going after this. And I think the verdict is out of how it'll be addressed from the selling side. And then last on the COVID front, again, I don't think this is new news, although um, there is a significant um, amount of fake COVID-19 vaccines in Africa. And the Wall Street Journal actually put in a really great uh, article about the fact that there, the the authorities in Africa have seized, you know, 2,400 doses of an illicit vaccine, another 40, uh, you know, hidden plastic containers, um, and counterfeit 3M branded N95 masks. But the vac, you know, so in Africa specifically, uh, they're starting to seize quite a bit. And um, again, I was able to, through my own research, find a whole bunch of places that in Africa sold vaccines that look very official, but as we all know, the risk of counterfeit um, vaccines, obviously you don't know what that injection is. There's a whole bunch of different things occur. And I think um, it kind of goes to what was said earlier on the podcast is in some countries uh, that are in you know more challenging economic situations, you see more of this, uh, the more of this risk of this fake vaccine and what some of the things that um, could occur. There's also... Um, there also was a, a seizure in Poland of fake vaccines, um, and that there was also um, a, another seizure in in Europe. And unfortunately, I don't have my notes in front of me where um, the fake vaccine actually would have caused damage. So it wasn't just a placebo or sugar water or a saline. It was, um, you know, a kind of a remedy made. So. We're going to continue to see this. Um, fortunately, we are not seeing this in North America. We are seeing this outside of the United States in a much heavier fashion. Um, and uh, as we say always, we, you know, when there's a major event, you do unfortunately have the bad actors going to, to try to take advantage of it. In this case, it poses a significant risk for all of us because uh, folks that think they're vaccinated that, that aren't obviously could put uh, other people at risk as well as all of the unfortunate things that occur when you do have a bad vaccine or something that isn't what you thought it was. So with that, I will uh, turn it over to Reed. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Tony. Uh, good information, a lot going on. Um, and just wanted to reinforce, like you said, Tom, you mentioned fusion net and the ability to fuse together uh, decision makers, uh, people in the field, in the different localities that are dealing with uh, all kinds of things, right? The dangerous weather, uh, other acute events, as we call them, uh, riots, looting, um, active assailant, and so on, even robberies where you can coordinate um, if you're having a string of robberies. So it, it's just a, a nice, simple, free tool to any LPRC member. They can get their teams in there before, during, or after any kind of crisis, um, again, in a local level, at the corporate level. Um, with uh, they can post open source intel. They can use the the voice channels to communicate with each other in real time. You know, almost like TAC channels in law enforcement and so forth to stay connected, to share information, uh, to keep each other safe uh, through information and ideas. So that's the intent. And again, uh, reinforce that what Tony said too that the innovation capability now uh, that the LPRC has, and particularly in tandem with. Um, leading faculty and students from the University of Florida and, and beyond um, is unprecedented at this point. Uh, we are very excited about uh, LPRC Europe and what's going to take place. Uh, we're obviously uh, going to be paying attention to the travel situation, 
but it's happening. We've got multiple retailers uh, that are very excited about it. And um, we're excited about it here as well. And I mentioned uh, our new, newest scientist, uh, Mackenzie. She's helped us draft um, an instrument or a questionnaire that will really let the European retailers, their leaders, and, uh, and others express exactly what are their current and future needs. How would they like to focus? It's all about, it's all about the member. So everybody, uh, I want to thank you, Diego. Uh, but I want to thank everybody out there. Stay safe. Keep us informed. LPResearch.org is the website. Uh, and uh, operations at LPResearch.org is the email address to give us your questions, your comments, your suggestions. So stay safe from Gainesville. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at LPResearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Office Prevention Research Council.